welcome to episode 189 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What is going on? Not much, man. I'm excited about today's episode. This is a... Uh... This is a, a listener response episode. I'm pretty stoked. It is. This is like part two. It's not quite a sequel, but it's pretty close. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's like a, what, like a trequel or like a quadquel. <laughs> like it's the, we, we talked about this a, a number of times, but this is so a smooth. sequel to the last question cast. That's right. And this episode is, we're so eager to get to it that we've just jettisoned affirmations and denials on yeah, this particular episode. I'm affirming this episode. <laughs> yes, in favor of getting right to the point. So yes. we did an episode, it was, I guess, two episodes ago. So 187? Yeah, something that like that. right? 179. Okay. It's somewhere in there. It's in the three, <laughs> it's in the three digits. Yes. And we, we spoke in the, that question cast about the second commandment and about violations of the second commandment as it applies to images of Jesus. And we've talked about this before. It's not the first time, but we put out the call for all kinds of follow-up questions because we found that we got just a lot of follow-up questions because of that conversation. And so what we did is we went through, we combed the interwebs, we checked our voicemail, we looked at the emails, and we compiled all of these questions together. And we're going to talk about them today. How do you feel about that? Let's do it. So we've got five questions, and these represent the best encapsulation of everything that everybody asks, because we read everything, we listened to everything. And so these have been somewhat retooled for some, because I'm trying to bring together the essential elements of what's being asked. But by far, the number one question that we were asked in response to that episode, and generally this idea of the second amendment violation with images of Jesus, is this question. If the second commandment forbids all images of Jesus, including those created in the mind, which we affirmed, then how are we to mentally process passages of scripture that describe Jesus in physical detail or narrate his activity? And we might point to, or some did point to, passages such as John's vision in Revelation chapter one, or others just in the gospels where we get some sense of that Jesus is doing something. It's narrative in style. It's telling a story. And of course, he's a character present in that story. So I want to kick us off on this because this was something that I thought about with great detail, no pun intended. (laughs) And what I think is actually interesting, the more I actually studied the scripture, the more I actually looked into these accounts where initially I was drawn to say, well, look at all these passages where we have like description of Jesus. What I actually found was there's actually not that much description of Jesus. Yeah. That in fact, like the human mind wants to fill gaps and it is a mind that wants to conceive and we are visual people. And so because of that, we have a tendency to think that there's a lot more description as we're trying to fill in because we want to envision things. And so I, I contrast it almost this way. One of my favorite writers, like, like if I'm going to be super nerdy, is Dostoevsky. And Russian writers are crazy with their descriptions. Like that's one of the things like they're known for and made fun of is like Dostoevsky can spend four pages describing a flower to you. And when he does that, he's not just concerned that the flower is he is in the text or in the story, or he's conveying some sense of information that's present. He wants you to envision his flower in his flower alone. So he goes to great lengths 
to describe all that stuff. And so I, th- I find actually nowhere in the Bible, either in the Old Testament or New Testament, is there actually a physical description of Christ? And I think we should ask, isn't it strange that if God wanted to use the picture of Christ in spreading the gospel or in worship, that we're not told whether Christ was tall or short, fair or dark, light or dark skinned, you know, has dark hair, light hair, blue eyes or brown eyes. I mean, some of those things we can infer just from the people group he belonged to in his humanity. And yet, even with all of that, the Bible is silent on physical description. So I would start by answering this question by saying, I think there's actually a lot less of this physical detail or description than we actually think there is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to maybe back up a little bit, right? Because the most common, um, I don't want to call it response, critique, the most common sort of objection to the the reformed perspective or the reformed interpretation of the second commandment is sort of this idea that, well, this is only talking about uh, worship or this is only talking about images used in worship. But you actually have to go a little bit further back than that conceptually to understand why it is that the reformed uh, traditional perspective is that all images of God are forbidden. And so for that, we go to Deuteronomy chapter four, which is um, Deuteronomy is kind of like Moses expositing the the previous work that he's done, right? He's giving, he's re-delivering the law to his second generation of Israelites, right? The first generation received the law at Sinai. They all die in the desert. And so it's this second generation of Israelites that he's kind of expositing the law in, in long sermonic form uh, to further explain it, to help them not to fall into idolatry. And so if you look in, um, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter four and you start in, um, let's see, we'll say verse 12, it says, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There right. was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. So Moses specifically here says that he's commenting on these ten words or ten ten commandments. You know, we call them ten words traditionally called the ten uh, ten commandments. Um, he says these ten commandments that he wrote on two tablets, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you the statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you were going over to possess. So right here we have a divinely inspired, divinely articulated commentary on the Ten Commandments. Right. And he says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure or the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, that creeps on the ground. I'm I'm starting to summarize a little bit. And it says, beware you lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and moon and stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn to bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So what this is getting at is there's the, there's the two common objections to the reform perspective here. There's the objection that either this is only in the context of worship, right? He's on, the, the prohibition of images only applies to the context of utilizing these images in worship. Right. Or the other objection is, or if if this is a universal prohibition, then it really is universal, which means all images of anything are prohibited. Well, this commentary here tells us that this is specifically related to images that are intended to be of God. And and so it says that here by saying 
the reasoning, all of the logic that underlies this starts in verse 15. He says, since you saw no form on that day, the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. All of this rests on the fact that not only did God not reveal a form, but if you go even sort of further down, God has no form. And so any form that God, uh, that we uh, conceptualize God in is already failing to properly conceptualize God. Um, so, so that's where we have to start, right? The second commandment is not just about, um, it's not just about worship, although it is about worship. It's not just about um, misusing images of God. It's about the fact that all images of God are forbidden because God has not given us an authorized image to use. Right. He, he either did not give us an image by revealing his actual image because he has none or by by sort of sanctioning or authorizing an image by appearing to them as such and commanding them to use it. There are all sorts of, of appearances of God in the Old Testament, but none of those are sanctioned appearances to be used in, in the context of imaging God. Nowhere exactly. is it commanded or permitted to take what a way that God appeared and then, then somehow replicate that in the form of an image. It's just not something that we see in the Old Testament scriptures. So that has to be our foundation. That right. has to be the baseline of where we start is that God has not revealed any sort of, and, and this, I'll, I'll loop this around to the sort of the specifics of this question in a second here. God has not revealed himself in any sanctioned image or any sanctioned form whatsoever. Where this comes into, into play with Jesus is sometimes the argument is made, well, we can extrapolate certain things uh, from the fact that he was human, from the fact that he was a man, from what we know about people at the time, you know, all these different things. It's actually, it was funny. I was looking through Facebook this morning and I saw one of those list articles, they call them listicles. And it was like top 10 people from the ancient world that, that we've recreated. And all of them, all of them were like Egyptians where we have their skull or we have a death mask or we, we take a painting of George Washington and we, we sort right. of recreate it. And then, of course, number one is Jesus. Well, all of the images that they have that they've done, they're not from any sort of artifact. They're not from any sort of uh, painting or impression of him or, or eyewitness accounts that you know recollect what he looks like. They basically have just said like, well, this is what we think a, a first century Jewish man looked like. But right. if you've done any study in anthropology or history, it is notoriously difficult to try to recreate what a person, uh, like a people group, looked like unless you have some sort of actual archaeological evidence to do so. I mean, if you think about, like, the images that you, you see painted on, uh, like, a wall or carved into a wall of, like, the ancient Egyptians, that's probably not what they looked like, right? They're, they're not all standing around and profile. There, there's, there's all sorts of different uh, elements that are probably missing. So we have to ask, and this is the core of this question. Have we been given either sufficient visual information in the scripture to reconstruct an accurate image of Jesus or a divinely inspired, revealed, sanctioned image to use instead of an accurate image? And right. I, I think the answer to both of those is, an, is a no. Like th there's no and, and this goes into just general ancient history. The ancients didn't really describe themselves all that often. Like, it's just not that common. There's very little in the way of description of almost anybody in the Bible, even if we just go beyond Jesus. There's no description that we know of in the scriptures of Paul or Peter. There's very few descriptions of David. What we know about David is he was ruddy and handsome, right? We know Saul was tall, but we don't really know exactly what that means. So, right. so we have to be careful because 
it is really common, and this is something you hear all the time. It's like, well, what about all the descriptions of Jesus in the scripture? There aren't any. Like, th- right. there aren't exactly. any. So, so although that understandably would have some force if those images were there, if the scripture gave us an actual physical description of Jesus, then maybe we would we would have some ground to stand on to make something based on that. But we just don't have that. Right. That's the key. I like how you emphasized from Deuteronomy this idea that. Moses commenting and saying, you saw no image. So as if like, to, he's almost double emphasizing that, like as if to say, you need to understand where we're coming from. The word is always given right. the, the paramount importance here. And it, it's not just that, like you said, it, culturally, there was this tendency not to elaborate on details of physicality. But even beyond that, you'd think, it, you know, Peter and John, who the scriptures tell us, love Jesus passionately. Even they didn't give some kind of thorough description of him. And the only reason I can think of is is they were through the power of the Holy Spirit as they were writing this down, they were forbidden to do that. You know, they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so I think it's significant that neither they nor any of the other scriptures give a physical description of the Lord. And surely if God desired to use pictures of Christ to further the cause of Christ, he would have had a physical description of his son in his word. And so I think we have to be very careful with this because we need to separate out the fact that, of course, in the telling of the Christ's life, in the demonstration of what he accomplished in his holy living on our behalf efficaciously, then we need to understand that facts need to be given. And so there's a difference between saying and telling a story, giving the narrative and giving the, the representation of those who are present versus trying to fill your imagination with every detail about what happened. Because right. I think we can get wrapped up in missing the point where we get so focused on, well, let me imagine what it was like when Jesus you know, preached or taught or in this situation, what he looked like when he did this thing. That's not at all what the gospel is trying to communicate to us. In fact, it could be a massive distraction. And so I think the other thing we need to be concerned about with this type of questioning, and this just creeps up. I'm not, there's no, there's no, I'd say nefarious intent in bringing forward this question. It's a very kind question is trying to understand how to apply this. But what we have to be very careful about is if we believe what you just articulated about the scriptures, that they tell us that the second commandment is not just about some like other primitive cultures manufacturing golden calves to worship or sun and moon gods, but it applies to even Yahweh himself. Then by asking this question, what we're essentially doing is we're pitting the scripture against itself. Right. Because we're saying, well, the, no, the Bible is basically trying to pro- or promulgate this idea of envisioning Jesus, and therefore it is contradicting what I understand elsewhere in the scripture about a prohibition against envisioning Jesus, then it is destructive because it is not cohesive in its, its uh, entirety. So I think like by creating an image of Jesus, I, I, this is the way I see it, because, because it's absent in the scriptures, by creating like an actual image of Jesus where we focus and, and by the way, maybe like not all of our, ma- maybe some people's imaginations are like super good. Mine is not this good, apparently. Yeah. Like I can't, I can't just like from little detail, like picture things in my mind that clearly. But if you can, by creating an image of Jesus, a person is undoubtedly inserting his or her own ideas into what Jesus looked like for all the right. reasons you just gave. Yeah. So because we do not know what he looked like, this image would not be, of course, a true or representative image of Christ. It would simply be an image of a man from the imagination that one calls, quote unquote, Jesus. And if those images then do not truly represent Christ, then they put in the place of Christ, the true Christ. I mean, I think that's, that's the thing that's so dangerous about this. And evoking any sense of worship of that which is not Christ but rather insert in the place of Christ is by definition idolatry. And right. this can be a kind of 
subtle idolatry, but it is nonetheless idolatry. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that that's where we have to go with this in terms of the uh, the way that we think about this. Because if you go back to that passage in Deuteronomy, right, there's a reason given for why God did not reveal a form. So so, so there's several layers of logic that's going on here, right? The, the primary layer of logic is you should not make any images because God did not reveal an image to you. But then there's another layer, if you dig a little bit deeper, that kind of explains why God did not reveal an image. And that comes in verse 19. He says, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and moon and stars and all the hosts of heaven, be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. And so right. this this right. whole thing rests on this foundation that God did not reveal this image in part because he he has no image, right? So, so there's an element of uh, truthfulness to this. But also because the people have this propensity for idol worship. And, and I think when I think about myself, right, because that's, that's kind of the last plank in this opposition to the reform tradition is like, well, you know, I'm not going to worship this idol. If I have this picture of Jesus hanging up in my hallway, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to worship it. And and this, there's this funny thing that happens in the reform pub where, um, where, and I'm not in the reform pub anymore, but there's this funny thing that happened a lot. People will post a picture of Ewan McGregor playing Obi-Wan Kenobi from the prequel trilogy, particularly in episode two and three, when he's got just, I'm hopefully I'm not causing him to stumble here, but he's just got, he just looks like Jesus. Like he looks like the stereotypical, uh, blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus picture. And this all started from a meme because some little old lady had a picture of this, this uh, actor in this costume up in her house and was treating it as though it was a picture of Jesus. And, and so there is this propensity to create idols out of everything, right? That's, that's straight out of John Calvin. The human heart is a factory of idols. And he's specifically talking about this propensity to worship images. And so we need to be cautious to think that we are so much better than the Israelites that we can handle images of God. Right. Like we, we can handle that. We, we can, we can resist the urge to worship them as idols. Well, maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe there are some people who have that strength. Most people I don't think do, but what about your kids? What about that immature Christian who doesn't realize that, that it's not okay to bow down and pray to this picture of you and McGregor as, as a Christian, you know, dressed in a way they think Jesus would look like. So, so we have to be cautious because the, the fundamental underlying reason for this prohibition of images is because God has not revealed himself in image. And because he, he didn't do that because in part, because he was protecting the people from idol worship, because right. they have this propensity to fall into it. So there was one other part of this question that I want to make sure we talk about before we move on to the next ones. And I know we have a bunch of them, but what about, uh, what about revelation chapter one? Like what, what do we do with that? Like that's, that's the one place in the scriptures where I, well, maybe not the one, but it's one of the places in the scripture where I think you can actually point and say, look, it's describing Jesus physically. It's, it's giving physical descriptors right. to Jesus. What do we do with that? Right. Are you asking me? I am asking you. <laughs> I love it. I thought you were setting up like a super sweet rhetorical response right there. I mean, I uh, have so, one, but I'm sure no, you do I, too. I know. I know you do. Um, well, let me, can I say one thing on what you just said before we, we get to that? Because yeah. um, we, you and I joked about this like earlier in the week or a couple of weeks ago, and it, it fits in so well with what, what you just said and where we're going into Revelation. And that was this idea that we kind of joked uh, tongue in cheek, but we were being serious uh, in text about how 
somehow it's it's acceptable to like conceive of the idol in your mind, but yes. if, when you manufacture it, then you cross the line, right? <laughs> As if like you haven't already done that. So like for all those people that would be like, oh no no no, like I I never like sculpt an image of Jesus, like that's clearly out of control. But like of course the first domino to fall in that is the mind conceiving of the image itself. And right. so is there a difference between the two? And I think we're saying there isn't. And that's why I want to, we want to try to stay away from that. And I think that the Bible actually by lack of description sets up these natural boundaries right. to keep us away from that. And I yeah. don't think either of us are saying it's, it's not work sometimes to, to make sure that we keep our minds on point as it is in every manner of life to keep your mind on point. Yeah. Like in some ways, okay, this is going to be a slight excursious, but in some ways, like the idea of like Job talking about like he has not looked on a woman like in a lustful way is no different than what we're talking about here. It's as if to say like, well, because their lust exists in the world and because I might be tempted to do that, therefore I'm just going to give in to that temptation. Right. And, and so in some ways this is, this is very similar. Anyway, to your question, here's what I would say to, and I want to set you up for like the, the uh, discussion after this. I would say that it, I'm going to take it from the literary standpoint because I think you're going to take it from a different standpoint. From the literary standpoint, I say we look at Revelation. What we're getting, what John is describing to us, is he is using physical characteristics, but these are not normal figure. Figu- these are not normal physical characteristics. They are predominantly figurative to demonstrate characteristics of Christ in his exalted state. Right. And so even there, if you were like, have you ever seen? I I've unfortunately seen these images where somebody has taken that passage and like literally transcribed it, like tried to draw out all those things and you get a really ridiculous picture of what he's describing. That's not an actual human person. And so because of that, again, we're getting a particular type of description. And that is not one that, again, if you tried to envision would be representative of Jesus in an exalted state. Again, I think we just focus on the wrong things instead of what John is trying to communicate to us. So what say you about that? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think you're spot on. Is The point of these texts is not to actually give us physical descriptions of Jesus. The point of these texts is to use visual symbology to communicate yes. true things about his character, right? So, so just so we're all on the same page, let me read it. This is Revelation 1. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 13. It says, And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool with snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, uh, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Right? So people will look at this and go, well, there's, there's visual characteristics here. Well, most of these visual characteristics are not things that we have a lot of direct experience with. So they're not, right. they're not probably not the kind of thing that's going to involuntarily call to mind some image uh, to your mind. But the, the, the most people that buck against the use of images that, that are, they're kind of willing to accept the reform perspective on the 10th, you know, the second commandment until you get to images of the human uh, nature of Christ, until you get to human Christ. Cause that right. the argument then goes, well, you know, he's human. You can image a human. Well, let, let me just read something else here from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancients of days took his seat. His clothes was white as snow, and his hair like uh, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. And streams of fire issued and came out from him from before him. Right? So, so if uh, Revelation chapter 1 is providing physical details about Jesus and that therefore enables us and sanctions us to make that image. Then also Daniel seven is providing the same exact physical characteristics for the father 
uh, for the Ancient of Days. In this case, from the context, we know that it's, it's probably referring to the father uh, and therefore thus sanctions an image of him as well. So the logic cuts both ways there. So if you want to say like, well, because we have this description in Revelation 1 of Christ, we can, we, we're allowed to draw images of Christ, then we're also allowed to draw images of the father. And most people right. who are sort of reformed leaning may draw the line at images of God the Father because they know he has no image. So it's automatically a false image. Well, that, again, that language, that logic now then applies to Christ. Like, we don't have a sanctioned image of Christ. Christ is no less God in, in that he took on a human nature. It's not somehow, you know, it's not somehow the case that all of the things that prevent us from drawing an image of the Father or of the Spirit, somehow Christ emptied himself of those by taking on human flesh. What we're doing instead is we're only partially imaging Jesus and inaccurately at that. So we have to look at all of the all of the information in the Bible. We have to take it holistically and we have to recognize the logic and the reasoning that underlies our prohibition of images, right? It's about it's about what we're allowed to do in worship. It's about what what we've been revealed in the word of God and it's about applying the logic that God has given us consistently. And again, using the Bible to interpret the Bible. Using Deuteronomy 4, which is right. Moses' inspired interpretation of Exodus 20 to inform what Exodus 20 means. Because most of the time when people point at it, they go, see, look, it's all about worship in Exodus 20. Very rarely do those people demonstrate that they have an understanding of what it is that Moses has said later in response and reflection on, on what he said in Exodus 20. Right on. That Actually, that is a great segue into the second most question that we were asked and this is a good one because I think this is the one I love that we had so many listeners who are willing to reach out in honesty and ask the questions that I think we've all thought about before, but sometimes yeah. we're too a little afraid to ask. And so the second most question asked question was this, what about the use of images of Jesus in children's books? Isn't this in some way a necessary way of communicating something about the gospel. We want to teach our children. Our teacher children are a little bit more simple-minded than we are. And of course, in trying to explain who Jesus is and that he was truly God and truly man, is it appropriate to use these images when we're teaching children? And the way that I would rephrase this question slightly, and this has an edge to it because I think this is really what we're asking is, are resources for children exempt from the second commandment. Yeah. And I think even if we just start by looking at history, the first four centuries of the, in the history of the church, there was no picture of Christ was used. And so there were years when the church made, I think, and these were like the years when the church made like the most astonishing growth. And so even like the apostle Peter did not need pictures of Christ to instruct the young or bring the gospel to adults. And so I think what we're asking here is whether there is some realm, some medium, some collateral in which it's just okay to use these images of Jesus because there's something that supersedes the commandment, everything that we've just said, which is why this is a good segue in. And you remember like when we talked about this last time, I was at least trying to make the point that can images of Jesus help in saving souls or in the education of children. And that's also part of what we're asking here. Can they help? Are they useful? Are they profitable? And the thing is, looking at a picture of Christ, either like hanging upon the cross or some depiction of him, let's say, healing a blind man, it doesn't tell us anything about what's happening there. It doesn't tell us or explain to us or enumerate to us what God is doing through his son in that moment. This yeah. is where, of course, the word comes in. So I recognize that in you and I answering this question, having a little bit of conversation, some people will consider us at a disadvantage because neither you nor I have children. 
and I think that this just is the is the last bastion of the holdout for this idea that yeah. like the, the children need this. And so we're probably going to sound maybe a little bit harsh because I'm kind of anticipating your answer, which is like mine. And that is that, uh, no, there is, when, when we talk about these, the, the second commandment, either we are subscribing to it or we are not. Right. And I think this is one of the many areas of the scripture, even my own life, where it's not necessarily that we have tested this, that we, we put God to the test, in other words, of obeying him, taking him at his word and founding that he is lacking. It's rather we have done the opposite. We have not actually subscribe to God's word instead of thought we know the better way to go about explaining. Yeah. I mean, I want to be sensitive to this because you and I don't have oh, children. Oh, but man, I have, don't be I sensitive. Have, now that makes me look bad. I, I have to all get there. Don't worry. I have taught children. I mean, I, I, I've spent so time so I've spent time teaching children. Um, I've taken courses in youth ministry that talk about educational development and theory. And, and I totally understand the idea that kids may or may not be more visually stimulated. Like th- th- it may be the case that some kids don't do well learning by words and they need to see things. Sure. But, but at the end of the day, and, and if you want me to get less sensitive, I guess this is where it's going to come from. At the <laughs> end of the day, we, we don't get to, de- it's not up to us to decide yes. what the prescribed manner of passing on the faith is. Right. And, and this is where it comes in. You know, like I said, we kind of joke about it, but like God didn't inspire a picture book. He didn't expire storyboard cut out Jesus. He didn't expire or inspire, um, you know, uh, felt board Jesus. He inspired the scriptures, which is profitable for training, rebuke, you know, um, reproof and teaching in righteousness, right? Not, not just for adults, right? There's no disclaimer in that, in that passage that says, oh, but for kids, he actually didn't, this isn't profitable for training and, and for rebuke and for equipping the man of God for righteousness, right? So, so on a fundamental level, it really is about there's another fundamental question that we're going to, I think we're going to get to when we get to a, a later question, you know, just sort of anticipating is the second commandment, it, it does it actually forbid the images of Jesus or not? If it doesn't, then all bets are off, right? If we're right. wrong and, and all images of Jesus are permitted because they're not permitted, forbidden, well, first of all, that, that's not the regulative principle of worship. That's the normative principle of worship. But, but if we're wrong, then yeah, then we can have this discussion. But if, if the creation and use of images of Jesus is intrinsically sinful, if, if it is intrinsically immoral to do so, then there are no circumstances where to use it is lawful, whether it's teaching children or teaching people with developmental disorders or disabilities, right. or, or even in your own personal development, you just find it more effective. None of that gets to dictate what it is that we've been commanded and permitted to do. And, you know, you mentioned Peter several times. Here's, here's what Peter has to say about it. In first, uh, second Peter chapter one, he says, um, we did not cl- follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, right? So Peter's establishing, like, I saw Jesus. I was there. I saw it. He says, for when he received honor and glory from God, the father and the voice born to him by the majestic glory, uh, born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven and we were with them on the holy mountain. Right. So, so Peter is saying, look, I was there. I saw it. I was on that mountain. It was just me and James and John. We were there. We saw it. We heard it. We, we experienced it. But then he says in verse 19, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully conformed 
to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Right. So what Peter is saying is we were there, we saw it, we experienced it, but even more importantly, even more powerfully is that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Well, when you have a comparative statement that says more fully confirmed, you have to ask more fully confirmed than what? Well, more fully confirmed than even Peter's own experience of Christ in the flesh. Right. So the other question that sometimes comes up is, well, what what about the people who saw Jesus? Would it be sinful for them to remember that recollection? I, I don't think it would be. There's a there's a there's an error in logic there because we're comparing unlike things, right? A, a real impression of something created by the sun is not a second commandment violation, right? Because what we're really talking about is using a created media to portray God the Son. Well, when when God when God the Son, if he were to, you know, put push his face into clay and create an impression of his face, that wouldn't be a second commandment violation. There are some people who would say it would be and that he would never do that. But even something as straightforward as like when he walks on the beach, he leaves footprints in the sand, like not to parrot that old like gnostic thing but you know there, there are things even like his voice is a physical impression in a created media none of right. those things are actually violations because they're real the the, the reason that they're okay is because they're real the right. the impression exactly. in a person's mind of a person is a physical impression largely it's 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 actual physical changes in the brain created by the way that light has hit the eye and and Airwaves have hit the ears, like it's physical, it's real. So it would not necessarily, at least in my opinion, maybe you disagree with me, but it wouldn't be sinful for Peter to think back and remember. He's doing it right now, right? He's saying, I was there. We heard the voice. He's recollecting it. So we know that he did it. But where where the difference is and where the error in logic comes in is you're comparing unlike things because we don't have that. Right? We don't exactly. have that experience to rely on. We don't have that. So when we create or construct an image of Jesus, whether it's a physical image of Jesus or a mental image of Jesus, we're, we're constructing that completely out of whole cloth. Right? We're drawing right. conclusions based on such limited information and data. I don't want people to do this, but when people imagine Jesus, the Jesus they imagine is a composite of people they've encountered. Right. But none of those people are Jesus. That composite right. isn't Jesus. So they're literally making up Jesus in their mind uh, in a way that's just not healthy. And this is where I think it does apply to children specifically is even if we can get rid of like, is it almost jettison this whole idea of let's say for a second that the second commandment doesn't apply to Jesus. Even if that were the case, we have no actual description of him. So therefore we can't actually just depict an accurate Jesus anyway. And so I I think where the rubber meets the road with respect to children and uses in education is that a picture of Christ, if if it serves any useful purpose, must evoke some thought or feeling respecting him. And in view of what he is, this thought or feeling will be worshipful. Like that's what images do. And so we cannot avoid making the picture a medium of worship. I I actually think it's really difficult. I I would almost go as far, so far as to argue that it's impossible to do that. Even if you think that you're skilled enough to separate like feelings, emotions, and veneration from an image that you are considering to be representation of God. I'm not sure that's actually possible, like to be honest with you. And so since 
like these materials for this medium of worship are not derived from the only revelation we possess respecting Jesus, which is the scripture. The worship is constrained by a human mind that has no revelatory warrant. And so the principle of the second commandment to me, as I understand it in the scripture, is that we are to worship God only in the ways prescribed and authorized by him. Right. And so it's a grievous sin to have worship constrained by a human figment. And that is what a picture of the Savior involves. And so as it applies to children, we should think that one of the things we want to do is if we want them to eventually grow and mature to such a place where they honor the second commandment, then it's hard to start in a place where we dishonor the second commandment with right. them by providing yeah. all these images to begin with. Yeah. And you know, there, there, um, there are no other areas in Christian theology that we think this way, right? There, there's nowhere else that we think um, it's okay for us to relax the restrictions of God's law for children. Like there's nowhere that we, we believe that um, we might kind of like laugh a little bit when they cuss. Cause it's sort of funny. Cause it, it like, it's out of place. Uh, but like when one child strikes another child, we don't be like, well, you know, he didn't murder him. So it's okay. Like he, he'll learn not to murder later, but we'll, we'll, we'll be okay. Like we just don't do that. And I know that's somewhat of a facetious way to argue because we're talking about presuppositions. Most of the time when people make the argument that it's okay to use images for children, uh, they're actually rejecting the entire reformed understanding of the, the, the second commandment. Right. So, so it's not a matter of like, is it okay for us to, it's not so much, I know you're trying, like you were trying to rephrase the question in a way that sort of repositions it. It's not so much asking, is there an exception in the second commandment for, for images in children's books? It's really, does the second commandment apply to images of Jesus or not? If oh, it course. does, right. if it does, then that applies to children's book. And just, just to put a sort of maybe a cap on this, I, I know I've quoted this before, but we're not the first generation to struggle with this. It's not as though, um, you know, we live in an era where like, oh, well, we, you know, we got to figure out what to do with the kids because the, even in, even in the Reformation times, in, in the time when they're writing the Heidelberg Catechism, question 98, it says, but may not images be tolerated in the church as books to the laity? Well, the idea behind that question is that the average person in the congregation couldn't read. And so they, they, the question was, well, can we use pictures to explain the, the story and the gospel for the people who can't read the Bible for themselves? Well, in our day, that's primarily children we're talking about. But right. in the Reformation era, that was adults too. And the answer is no. And here, here's where it is, is when we say this, we sound arrogant, but this is our confessional tradition here. This is not just me. This isn't just Jesse. This isn't just some guys on the internet. This is the Heidelberg Catechism, right? This has ecclesiastical force. It's not the Bible. We understand that, but it has ecclesiastical force. It says, no, we must not pretend to be wiser than God. And then they give a reason because God will have his people taught not by dumb images, and they say dumb there in, in terms of like images that don't speak, but by the lively preaching of his word. And the point is that God intends his people, not just his adult people, but his children people too. He intends them to be taught by the preaching of the word, right? Not, not even just the private reading of the word, right? The Westminster right. does commend private reading of the scriptures to the people. And that's something that we should all do. But the, the Westminster also says especially the preaching of the word, right? But here what we have is that the Heidelberg is specifically calling out that God's intention is that his people are taught not by images, but by the preaching of the word. That's absolutely right on. Here's the thing I'm realizing. Apparently we need like four or five hours to answer all the questions. Yeah. <laughs> 
that we have set in front of us. But well, we'll try to make pace here and go through some of these. Uh, I, you're obviously right on. I think the the reason why this sometimes is seemingly inflammatory is because it involves children. And so I want to be clear. Tony and I are pro children, like yes. pro children, pro children learning about Jesus, pro children worshiping Jesus and loving their Savior. And so, uh, but I think that there is a proper way to do that. And I think what you just touched on is the right ways. We have to ask ourselves a question Does God know better? Can He right. be trusted with the way in which He's prescribed how we ought to educate right. ourselves and our children? Like, can He be trusted? And I understand it seems like this is because the world teaches in a different type of way. And it, in some ways, I think it's a great it's a great testimony when parents have such a strong fidelity to the scriptures in the way they educate their children. And again, yeah. you and I are not trying to like rail against parents. We don't have that explicit type of experience, but we know that the scripture is sufficient for all things, right. including guiding us in that way. Yep. So here's another question, also very popular. And I'm just going to uh, put this together and it's kind of a composite of a bunch of questions around the same theme. So in following the example of Psalm 77, verses 11 and 12, which actually states, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Did the people of Israel violate the second commandment by envisioning in their minds what the Bible describes here? So in all the Old Testament, there's all these images that like, for instance, the pillar of cloud and fire, the passing through the Red Sea, the spear piercing Jesus' side. So let me, I'll let you kick this one off. What do you think? Were the people of Israel somehow violating the second commandment as we've been describing it and putting it forth? Yeah. I mean, I think this, this question has a, an embedded premise, right? And, yes, And the does. premise is that they did that, right? That we don't actually think, we don't actually know that they did that. What, what the... Um, what the text here commends the people to do is to meditate on the deeds of God, right? The great yes, deeds of God. Exactly. Well, where do we know about the great deeds of God from, if not from scripture? And I mean, right I know on. that like there are oral traditions that were being passed down in, in Jewish history from generation to generation. And I get that, but the predominant source of this information that they got was from the scriptures. By this point in Israel's history, the oral tradition had largely been inscripturated. Right, and so when they're talking about the the fat, the you know, miraculous deeds of of the Lord, they're they're meditating on the scripture. So there's there's that first response I would say is that it, we shouldn't presuppose what this question does essentially is it says the Israelites would have done things the way that I would have done things, right. and if I was told to to meditate on that, I would have envisioned the, the pillar of cloud. So that's the first part is we have to sort of think like would they have actually done that? Do we have any evidence that they actually did that? Also. Just because they did that, does that mean that they were right? I mean, the Israelites had this propensity to worship idols. Um, you know, God commanded them to create the bronze serpent, which they did. But then generations later, he commanded them to destroy that because they had turned it into an idol. So it's right. not out of the realm of possibility that God would command something good in remembering the deeds of the Lord, that the people would then convert into something bad by, by making it a source of idolatry. In fact, they almost certainly did that. But where I, I think we have to think about things too a little bit more on, on a more theological level to, to think about like the the pillar of cloud and the, you know, sometimes like the image of the dove with the Holy Spirit, like those kinds of things come up. Those aren't necessarily second commandment violations to image those. And, and there are people that I would disagree with that would disagree with me on this. But God took on created mediums in the Old Testament. Right? He, he took on these created natures, these created forms, and appeared to people. 
well, they saw something. They didn't see God's essence. They didn't see right, God as he exactly. is. They saw something that was a created form meant to represent him, but they didn't see God himself. And so we have to think about the language carefully when it says like the pillar of cloud by day. Well, that was probably the Holy Spirit. But what was the Holy Spirit doing? He wasn't appearing in essence. He was appearing under the image or under the under the covering, the accommodated covering of these things. And so right. well, I wouldn't I would say it's probably unwise to image the the pillar of cloud or fire. I don't actually think it's a violation of the second commandment to do so, provided that you are um doing so in a respectful way and and that you're not worshiping it. But then that again gets to your issue of, well, can you really have an image that you believe is of God in any sense and not right. worship? Well, that's probably a different episode, but I don't think you can. I agree with you. But even if you could, right there, we mentioned it before, like right there now you're using something that has to do with the revelation of God not in the context of worship. Well, that now we're into the third commandment area where we're talking about vain use of God's revelation. Right. Which is best to just stay away then, which is right. why I think we're saying this, the second commandment prescribes these things, right. or at least creates these prohibitions against them. You know, one of the things that I, I think this is a, a great place for me to like, I want to add some nuance to what you said, because I think we're actually in agreement. Well, when you spoke about, for instance, before this idea of like Peter being able to, or any of the apostles being able to like recollect what Jesus looked like, that memory I believe. So if, if it was appropriate for them to think upon Jesus after his death and resurrection and ascension, then I would say that the only reason they were the, to do that with straight fidelity is because the Holy Spirit preserved that image right. in a way that was absolutely accurate. There Correct. was no corruption of it in their own mind, which Correct. because we talk about, there's so many famous studies written, of course, about how human memory is so fallible. Right. And so even that alone, I think would have been, there would have been some kind of like a spiritual component to that. But I actually think this is a question more about meditation than it is about imagery. Right. And I think that maybe we need to understand what meditation is. And so like, just to just very briefly, I, I like one of the things I've always gone back to is this quote from J.I. Packer. And he says that meditation is the practice of turning each truth we learn about God into a matter of reflection before God leading to prayer and praise to God. And so with that definition encapsulated in there is this essence that again, it's about the word and not about the imagery. And so I think even in the Psalm here where the Psalmist is after is the characteristics of God represented in his word that is concrete rather than trying to manufacture some sense of relying merely on creating some scenery in our mind or circumstance that would drive us back to it. It seems rather derivative to me. I think really what they're after here is meditation in the sense that it's this idea of chewing on the scripture, on the word, and it's a process of analyzing. And when you understand, I think, in the context of how the scripture portrays meditation to us, then imagery actually doesn't have a place in it. The remembering of the deeds is remembering what God has accomplished, not specifically the scenery, the circumstances in which the deeds took place, but the fact that this points us to a certain characteristic of God, for instance, his loving kindness or his faithfulness or his provision. And those concepts by themselves deserve to be analyzed and chewed on, but not manufactured by way of imagery. You know, right. one of the things that's interesting that I've seen real recently, and this is like a way I'm trying to tie this into like something I, I ju- actually I just saw this this afternoon. So... My wife and I went out for a brief spell. We had to stop at the grocery store. And on our way out in the atrium, there was this giant display of seltzer water. And I think you and I are both fans of the seltzer water. Yes. Yeah, I, I enjoy good seltzer water. They're, they're delicious. So this is not a representation of my feelings about seltzer water, but this display, it was beautiful. It had multiple flavors, and so they're all in different colors, and they're arranged kind of in a rainbow pattern. But 
what's spelled out in a like writ large, it's huge. It's up to the yeah. ceiling is the word spelled out hope H O P E. And it struck me that even what we have here is a representation of idolatry because right now everybody wants to be encouraged by something. And even the word itself seems to somehow convey some sense that everything's going to be okay, but it's disassociated of course, from what our true hope is in, which is in Jesus Christ himself. And so here, even in envisioning this, there is a way in which we can make this word an idol. Yeah. And so we have to be so careful with trying to bring about imagery in meditation. I don't think that's what the scripture has in mind when it says to us, think about the things that God has done, ponder his deeds. They're not saying like ponder the circumstances, like ponder the storyline, ponder the narrative, ponder what happened. They're saying ponder the deeds, what what took place. Yeah, and and you know, it's certainly possible, and and we'll probably touch on this a little bit as we go into the next question, but it is entirely possible to read a narrative account and not form a mental image. There, there are, are actually people in the world who are not capable of doing that. So the other common argument is like, well, human, the human mind is just built to image things. It's really not. It, it really isn't. Um, it, it's not built to or not to. And, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Is like the ancients don't do a lot in way of physical description. And, and most people, most people in the ancient world went their entire lives without ever seeing themselves in a mirror. So the most people didn't even know what they what they looked like. So in some levels, like this this obsession with visual data is a very modern uh, right. modern issue, right? When you when you track back in history, it's just not really as big of a deal to to previous generations of of people to have this visual imagery all put together. So you know when you think about meditating on the deeds of the Lord, I can I can think about the fact that the the father sent the you know sent the spirit in the form of a pillar of of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and that that uh pillar of fire stood between the israelites and the um and the army of pharaoh like i can think about those things without forming a mental image and and personally i actually have trouble doing that right. like when i want to think about something visual like if you were to ask me to think about an, an apple I don't think in images, right? I think in terms of descriptions. So I I say the word red in my head. Like I say the word smooth or waxy or whatever the descriptor might be. I don't actually, (laughs) well, yeah, like an apple has like that waxy surface, right? I don't think, I don't think in terms of pictures and lots of people don't. So that idea that like, it's not possible to read the scriptures without imaging what's going on. It doesn't really bear up if you actually talk to like more than just the people in your immediate area. And especially if you think beyond the horizon, just like the current generation of people that are alive. Maybe I'm discovering that we can answer all these questions with one question, which is, do you believe the second commandment applies to Jesus? And if so, is that like ubiquitous? And if it is, then all this stuff just kind of falls in line, right? Yeah, like, it really does. I mean, you know, and the other thing, well, why don't we go on to the next question to make sure we get to it? And I'm sure we can, we can loop back. <laughs> I mean, the, these issues are all so interrelated that I'm sure, you know, whatever yes. my point is now, we'll be able to bring it back in when we get to the next one. But I want to make sure we get to it. Oh, I have no doubt that you'll be able to pull that point out and I just do. slap it in to whatever question we have coming up. I love that. So I, I laugh because like, this is how our conversations go. Like even before we started recording, we basically had like a mini episode where we were talking right. about some of this stuff. So this is how we talk. 
So two more questions, and uh, I want to save the most practical for the last, uh, but they all, of course, have an element of practicality to them. This is another question that we got asked a lot, and that is, what part of the application of the second commandment of mental, we're talking about specifically mental images of Jesus, is a matter of Christian liberty? Yeah. So I don't want to be trite in in responding to this question, and I purposely phrased it as an open-ended question. Um, but I wanted to phrase it as a close-ended question because I, I think maybe what you've heard from us all along is that there is no liberty here with respect right. to this. If, if we're understanding that these... So let me say it this way. If we're understanding that the second commandment applies to images of Jesus, then this is all images, both those are conceived in the mind and those have been made into physical representation. All of them are prohibited. And if God is prohibiting them, then it means it's somehow for our good and for his glory. And one of the things I want to point out that was helpful to me in processing this is that when you look at the second commandment, this, this not making images, that there's actually like two clauses to it. And the, the second commandment is about, the first clause is about what God wants and does not want as it pertains to himself. Again, like he gets to set the agenda for worship and the method by which it is accomplished. And so when you look at Exodus 24, which is what we've been talking about this entire time, it indicates that people made images of God do not represent him and thus can never honor him with reverence and they can't serve him. So by giving this law, God restrains any attempt his elect, that's even you and I, might make to represent him by a visible image. Right. Then he lists some ways pagans have attempted to turn his truth that there is only one God and one true religion into a lie that there is more than one God and more than one way to heaven. And so like he references like the Egyptians, for instance, and cult religions that try to represent God by using animal figures, the Greeks and the Romans, who, of course, fraudulently believing themselves to be much more enlightened, depicted and worshiped God in human forms like Apollo or right. Orpheus. And in giving this first clause of the second commandment, God demonstrates that he has no desire for any people made images of him. He does not view one kind as more fitting or depicting of him than any other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this all boils down to what we were just talking about, right? Either either we're right about the second commandment or we're not. But if we're right then we don't have any liberty to violate the second commandment. Right. Right. To to talk about Christian liberty, to even get to that point, you have to establish that something is not sinful. Right. So just to to put a, like a exclamation point on that or an interrogation, if you will, uh, chapter, (laughs) chapter 20 of the Westminster uh, confession section three, they who upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty. So mm. the purpose of Christian liberty presupposes freedom from sin, not just freedom from sin in terms of we no longer are going to be punished from sin, but freedom from sinning, right? That Christian liberty is not the freedom to do whatever we want. It's the freedom to follow God's law. So when we talk about being free as a Christian, the the greatest freedom that we have in Christ is that we can actually do good things now. We can actually not sin, not entirely, not even for a moment, but we can actually not sin. That's the freedom that we have in Christ. So when we talk about Christian liberty, we have to have already established that something isn't in the category of sin. And so if Jesse and I are correct and images of Jesus are then there is no Christian liberty to make images of Jesus. If we're not, right. and you know, images of Jesus are just fine, 
uh, in terms of not being sinful intrinsically, well, that's where we get into the element of Christian liberty. And, and I've, I've argued before that even if, even if the reform position is wrong and images of Jesus for certain uses are permitted, they're still not wise. They're still not good. And so we, we should, we should exercise our Christian liberty cautiously just like anything else, we should be careful with how we exercise that. But if we're going to do something that could potentially draw others away from the faith, uh, either either by means of sin, because they, they, they don't have the strength to utilize an image without sinning, or because it's a child and they don't understand that they shouldn't worship cartoon Jesus that they saw in their Jesus storybook Bible, um, then, then we have to be cautious about that. But all of that is built on a foundation that we disagree with to start with, that images of right. Jesus are permitted. Right. Uh, so uh, to bring this all the way back around, because I had this in mind when you said it originally, and I was like, oh my word, Tony is always ahead of me. He's always like stealing my ideas and my points. You had said something about not being able to separate in the first question, this idea of worship and service. And I think this is where it's helpful for us to think about this prohibition in two parts, these two clauses, because the second clause prohibits the worshiping, like that is the giving of honor or reverence to anything other than God. In addition, believers cannot serve or be devoted to anything more than God. So according to like the second clause of that second commandment, the understanding of worship and serving are united together. And so because of that, whatever one worships, they're serving. And whatever one serves, they're worshiping. So as a result, to worship means to honor, revere, right. and serve. And so I think like the scripture clarifies what is acceptable when Jesus, talk about scripture, interpreting scripture, when Jesus defines true worship by declaring, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I love what John Calvin says about that. He profiles this understanding by saying it this way. The sum is that the worship of God must be spiritual in order that it may correspond with God's right. nature. And so yep. true believers are to worship God, that is to give honor, reverence, and service to God in spirit and in truth. The question I think ahead of us here, before us, is are we willing to do that? This sounds maybe harder than we might like it to be. It sounds different than we might otherwise choose for ourselves. But the question is, is God right? And so I think like that's, that's something that pervades all of this idea of the second commandment is, can we trust again God that he is giving us the right way in which to worship him? And I think we just, there's too many for me. What really won me over to this idea is that there's too many hurdles. There's too many roadblocks, this idea that even again, if this were permitted, there's just no leg on which to stand by looking at the scripture and then trying to manufacture or fabricate these kind of images that right. would be helpful, useful, profitable, or efficacious in worship. And so if we have to draw the line anywhere, in other words, like if the Christian is saying, well, there are gradations of this, and at some point I do draw the line, then I would say what that's saying to us is we need to draw the line with what God says initially, and not somewhere down the road where we tried to make some derivative exceptions to this. And so I, I agree with you. I don't think there's any liberty, but I think that's actually, and Reformed people are more minded this way, that is actually to revere God in the highest way, right. to lift them up as holy, and to protect us from going down a path that is unprofitable. Well, Jesse, thank you for pulling all these questions together. And thank you to our listeners for asking them. We, yes, we, we couldn't you. have done it without, well, yeah, we probably could have done it without you, but <laughs> there'd be no point to do it without you. 
<laughs> Please keep your questions coming. We love doing question casts. And frankly, it means we don't have to come up with our own topics, which is like a podcaster's nightmare trying to figure out what to talk about after 188 episodes. That's so, true. Jesse, until next time, now that I've convinced everyone we don't need them, <laughs> honor everyone, especially our listeners. Love the brotherhood. Oh.